0: Well, thank you for joining us this morning, church. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Esther chapter 6 with with me this morning. We are making our way through our sermon series through the book of Esther. As we arrive to chapter 6, we really see one of the pivotal chapters of the whole book. We see how the book climaxes in this chapter. Oftentimes, we don't title our messages here at Bridge Church, but I'm titling this sermon, The Great Reversal. We're going to see how God takes a hopeless situation with a bunch of helpless people that are in need of redemption, and He delivers. God is the ultimate promise keeper. The great reversal is one of the most prominent themes throughout Scripture, that sinful people were in need of something. They were heading towards punishment, and Jesus came down to earth and lived the sinless life, and He offered a way of salvation through death on a cross. See the great reversal is a prominent theme throughout Scripture, and it also saved the Jewish people in the Book of Esther. We left off in Chapter Five last week, where Haman could not stand Mordecai any longer. His friends told him that they need to build that he needs to build a gallows fifty feet high and just hang Mordecai on it. We left off as Mordecai uh, was was hopeless. Really, within the last few hours of his life, there's no hope to be seen. And we left off where Haman is getting ready to go to the king. And he's going to plead with the king that he needs to take out Mordecai now instead of waiting the 11 more months for the annihilation of all the Jews. We're going to see this week that God's plan is still perfect. That he is going to restore his people And we also see that Haman is coming headlong, is running headlong into God's providence and into God's promise. So would you pray with me this morning and we'll get right into our text. Father God, we love you. We thank you that we can worship you, that we can worship you freely wherever we are, God. So we pray for this uh, few moments that we have together that you will work in ways that we don't even know is possible, God. Would you work in each of our hearts that we may leave differently? God, we thank you for who you are, for the great reversal that you have enacted within our lives, God. Help us live in that freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to look at two scenes this morning that will help set the stage as to what God is doing in this text. Two scenes. The first scene is Sleepless in Susa. Sleepless in Susa, we see that in verses 1 through 3. We get introduced to the chapter that the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds to to be read before the king. Now we must look at these memorable deeds. This was not a book that you would read for fun. This was not a book that you would set a goal to finish during quarantine. This was not an enjoyable read. It was simply a list of things that happened. And yet we see this as something providential. The king can't sleep, so he asked for the memorable deeds to be read. The king can't sleep. It sounds like an insignificant type of situation. Well, the king can't sleep. That seems like a normal Tuesday night for most of us. Right? A lot of us can't sleep. A lot of us wake up in the middle of the night. Why is it such a big deal for the king? Such a, a, a small thing has big consequences. We see that because the king can't sleep, an empire gets saved. As the king we continue to read, as the king reads, or has the memorable deeds read to him, he figures out that Mordecai saved his life. So he begins to ask his people, Verse 3, and the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Within the king's um, right, he had to honor the people that have done something for him, especially by saving his life. And he says, "What What distinction or honor has been bestowed for Mordecai? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Nothing. So the king was in distress. Through this sleepless situation, God reveals his power in unique and, and mighty ways. See, Mordecai and the Jews felt hopeless. And through a sleepless king, God's starting to flip the script. He's starting to op- open up windows that we didn't think were possible. And you can imagine the readers in, in, in this time were, were astonished by what God was doing. Yet his name is never mentioned providentially steps are being placed all throughout the story. And it's climaxing here. The king can't sleep. Yet God reveals his power through that. So the king gets the deeds read to him and he realizes that Mordecai was never honored and the king knew that something had to be done. So he hears something in the court, verse 4, and the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that was prepared for him. This gets really interesting because we remember what Haman, it tells us what Haman was doing here. He was heading to the king to tell him that he needed Mordecai to be taken care of, that he was done with him, that he built these gallows 50 cubits high, and it was time to take care of him. So the king asked, who's in the outer court? And they tell him Haman is in the outer court. And this is where we see Haman's pride really starting to come through. The king says, okay, it's Haman. Bring Haman in. I need some help. I need some advice. This is really one of the only times we see the king make a really good decision. The king didn't decide who he was going to honor or what he was going to do to honor this person alone. So he brings Haman in. This is where we begin to see our second scene this morning. Scene one is sleepless in Susa. We saw that through the king's sleeplessness, God's power and his promise was starting to go in motion. That through things that we don't even think about, God still works through that. So scene one, sleepless in Susa. Scene two, we see that Mordecai is honored and Haman dishonored. Mordecai is honored and Haman is dishonored. The king asked who is in the court. Haman walks in. We must once again remember this detail that he's not there to hang out with the king. He's not there to brew him a cup of coffee and hang out as friends. He's not there to mow his grass. He's not there to um, do some interior designing. He's not there just to, to, to be friends with him. He's there on mission and for a purpose. And that purpose is to get Mordecai hung so he can move on with his life. But the king starts talking first. Haman doesn't get the right to talk first. The king starts talking first. And the king said to him in verse 6, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman, you can imagine, you can just picture. It's such a vivid picture. Haman's like, finally. Finally, somebody that understands how great I am. Finally, somebody who recognizes my purpose. Who recognizes what I have done. I've worked so hard. I've done all these things. Nobody's noticed me, but finally the king wants to honor me. Never for a moment did Haman think, maybe something's happened that I don't know about, and he could be talking about somebody else. See, that's how pride works in our lives. Pride works in mysterious ways, and when pride begins to build, we begin to think about ourselves more, and everything else and everyone else matters less. At this point in the passage, Haman's pride is at its peak. Pride begins to build, and nothing else matters, and all the glory, and all the honor, and all the recognition, and all the praise is focused on one person, and that's Haman. And we as believers read this passage and we have to guard our hearts against this type of pride. We're all prone to pride and we have to be able to recognize when it's entering our lives. Because as it builds, we begin to worry less about God and less about other people and their needs. And it's all about me and me and me. And where can I get the praise and the glory and the recognition? The king asked Haman what can be done. Haman's pride has blinded him to the truth that the king is actually talking about Mordecai, not Haman. Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Verse 7, And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. This pride is now revealed. Haman has left out no detail. He is saying that he needs full treatment. If he's going to be honored, he's going to be honored right. Every detail is there. However, this could have been solved easily if Haman asked one question. King, who is this for? King would have answered Mordecai and Haman would have answered very differently, but his pride has um, hidden the simple question. It has stopped him from asking the simple question, so... The king listens to Haman and he responds in verse 10. Look how the king responds to Haman. Then the king said to him, hurry, take the robes and the horses of you have said and do it to Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. And oh, by the way, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. You can imagine the image or the, the picture of, of Haman's head. Of of his face. You can imagine just how disappointed he was. How the pride was revealed in his heart. You can imagine how disappointed he was. We see in Proverbs 16, 18 that it says that pride comes before the fall. The pride was built up so much that it's blinded him that other people could actually do good. Sometimes pride works in our lives that we can be blinded to other people doing good because we only want to see our own good. And this proverb says that pride comes before the fall. And guess what? The fall is coming for Haman. So we also see, we see just how bad pride is here, but we also see a massive part of who God is. And it's one that cannot and will not be overstated. And that is that God always keeps his promises. Mordecai was hours from being hung and yet God delivered. So often, even in our lives, we get in these hopeless situations yet we know that God has promised us something and we say, maybe he just won't deliver. Maybe he changed his mind. And then we begin to play God and we begin to enter in all these situations and instead of let God do his thing in his timing, right? We have to believe that God's timing is perfect. I'm reminded of the story of Abraham and Sarah. God blessed, God told Abraham that he was going to bless him and he was going to make him a great nation. And yet he didn't stop there. He said, Abraham, your descendants are going to be great. I'm going to make them great. They're going to be the fathers of all these nations and and offspring will come out. And Abraham's like, okay, that's great, God, but there's one problem. I don't have any kids. And I'm ever increasing in age. Right? It seems that everything that God has promised looks contrary to what could actually happen. Abraham, Sarah, ever increasing in age, they're getting ready to hit the triple digits. And it took longer than expected for them to have a child. They're still without a child and Abraham and Sarah, Sarah gets impatient and she hires a, one of her servants. And you can read the rest of the story. It doesn't end well. She gets impatient and she says, maybe God won't fulfill the promise that he initially established with Abraham, so I'm going to do it myself. And you can see how that works. See, the problem with Abraham and Sarah was not childbearing. The problem was not if God is able to provide for them a child. The problem is God asking them a question, do you trust me? And them not being able to answer honestly. But God, we're old in age, and all these excuses begin to come up. And God stepped in in the final hours, and he certainly did provide them a son. God is stepping in to the final hours of Mordecai's life. God is not late. God is not done caring for his people. You may be what feels like the final hours right now. Watch God step into your life and deliver you in a powerful way that you have not seen before. That he promised to protect his people, and that's what he's doing. The great reversal in this story has taken place. Haman is now dishonored. Mordecai is honored. He's on the the horse. He's wearing the best clothes. The great reversal has happened. Look with me at verse 11. So Haman, he has to follow the king's order. He does exactly as the king says. He dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. You can imagine how hard this was for Haman. He had to do as the king said. The people outside the city knew exactly how much Haman hated Mordecai. And yet he is the one that is carrying Mordecai through the city saying, this is the man who the king honors. It's pretty ironic. Haman does exactly what the king says. He gives Mordecai all the honor and all the glory and all the praise. I want you to look at verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. That's so interesting to me. Mordecai, out of nowhere, he gets honored. He gets the king's garments. He gets the horse with, the, um, with, all the, with all the pomp to it, right? There's nothing left out. What does he do? The parade's over, and he's like, just going to go back to the gate. And he's just hanging out of the gate. And yet we see Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered, publicly declaring that he is humiliated. He can't hide it. There's no way he's going to get through this. Everybody in the city is looking at him as he walks around with his head down in shame, mourning for what has happened. Everybody knew. The pride was building in his life. The pride was large, but the fall was even greater. Haman told his wife, Suresh, and his friends everything that happened to him. Then his wise man Wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall. Church, if we have prideful things and the things if we're prideful in the things that we do, think about how fast God can remove that pride in your life. Haman walks in in his most prideful state front of the king and within hours he is completely and utterly humiliated. He's one of the most selfish men that we can think of, one of the most prideful men that we can think of yet within minutes, if not seconds, as the king said, let it be done to Mordecai, he is utterly destroyed. And we cannot be people that forget who we are. I think so often as Christians we forget where we come from. We forget how sinful we are and pride begins to build. And once we get there, we forget of our salvation. We forget what Jesus has done for us. That should humble us, not make us prideful and make us boast. If we're not careful, we become like Haman, not to the degree that Haman was, but we certainly become prideful that blinds us of everybody of everybody else of the needs of them and of Jesus and what he's done for us. And it's no longer about the salvation that Jesus has delivered. It's about what we are accomplishing. And I pray that we will not be people like that, that we will look honestly in our lives, that we will remember the salvation that Jesus has established, that we will remain humble with that. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, he says, pick up your cross daily. That requires humble submission to God. When he says pick up your cross daily, he's not joking, okay? This isn't some suggestion that says like, hey, if, you, if you're up to it today, like pick up your cross. He's saying pick up your cross daily in humble submission to me. That will remove the pride of your life. So may we be a church that picks up our cross daily in humble submission to God, saying it's okay if I don't receive the honor. It's okay if I don't receive the glory. Because at the end of the day, God's going to make all things right. May we be these type of people. Haman arrives back to his wife and to his wise men. The same people that said, hey, you should build a gallow. That'd be a great idea. Let's go ahead and kill Mordecai. He comes back and he begins to tell them, and watch how God preserves his people. Watch how he interacts, how Haman interacts with, with his people. These wise men and his wife may not be so foolish after all. They say, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him. See, they understand who the God that Mordecai worships is. They understand the history that God has restored the Jewish people, that he delivers the Jewish people, that he protects the Jewish people. That is the God that Mordecai serves, and they understand that. And they say, Haman, you can't beat this guy. If you're going up against the God that the Jews worship, just give up now. You can't do it. They have become wise after all. It's cool to see how God has always preserved his people. That he is the ultimate promise keeper. Martin Luther, one of the early church reformers, 16th century, famous for nailing the 95 Theses to the, the doorway. Throughout his ministry, he was often asked how, how can we know that God is true? How can we know that God is who he says he is and that we can trust him? Throughout his ministry, he was asked that simple question. And as it's recorded, in every instance, he's responded the same exact way. And he said it's simple, the Jews. We know God is real because he protects the Jews. He made a promise to them and he delivers that That is a God who is for his people. That is a God that we can trust. That is a God that we can know. That is a God that we can have a personal relationship with. That is not a distant God. That is a personal God. And in the same way in Esther, he's enacted this beautiful story of a promise-keeping God, reversing the story that seems hopeless, reversing the story that has no hope Mordecai was hours from being killed the Jews are months away from being completely annihilated and they began asking the question where is God maybe you're asking that same question right now your life seems hopeless and helpless and you don't know where to turn and you're asking the question where is God is God going to deliver God is still with you he is with his people he has not left One of the most prominent themes in all scripture is this idea of the great reversal. Starting in Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. He created male and female. They are in perfect harmony with God in the garden. Temptation enters the scene. The serpent tempts Adam and Eve and they partake in the forbidden fruit. And this didn't only hurt them, it created a cycle of sin and disobedience forever and ever and ever. And it wouldn't end in the sin. And the disobedience kept building and building and building. And God created these covenants with his people. Yet these covenants weren't the ultimate fulfillment. They couldn't solve it. Sin kept abounding. Then, it all climaxed in the New Testament when this baby was born named Jesus. Jesus came to live the perfect, sinless life, die on the cross, ultimately fulfilling the great reversal of life that we may now have life with him. Separated by sin and by death, Jesus has made a way that we can come together. Do you see this great reversal? Do you see it in the text, but more importantly, do you see it in all of scripture? Do you see it in your life? Can you honestly say, yes, I've tasted and I've seen the great reversal I've seen and I've tasted that the Lord is good in my life. I've seen it. Bible says that if you admit that you're a sinner and believe that Christ died on your behalf, and you believe that he rose from the dead three days later, then you will be saved. Maybe that's you today. You've realized that you need to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. I pray that you take this step of faith and say, yes, God, I admit that I'm a sinner, that I need you to come into my life and save me. The Bible says if you do that, He will save you. Maybe today you know that you are a sinner, that you have been saved and redeemed by God, and yet there is this pride that has uh, reared its ugly head. pray that God will Highlight that in your life and remove it so we can fully fulfill the mission of God. See, God has a promise for his people that he is going to restore and redeem and deliver. And he wants to do that in your life. And it's hard to do that if we have pride that is abounding. God, in this story, honors the unnoticed. And he Puts consequences on the prideful and the powerful. I pray that right now we respond as God is calling us to. That we will be men and women of action. That we respond how God is calling us to. That we will be people that see this great reversal. And will tell others about it. So how will you respond this morning? Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for this great reversal that you have said in each of our lives. Thank you that you are the ultimate promise keeper, that you're never late, that your timing is perfect. Thank you that we can have hope in you. When the outside world looks helpless and hopeless, God, we can rest in your presence. We can find hope in who you are. So God, help us do that. Help us respond honestly in our lives. Help us look at the pride and remove it. Help us to see the work of your cross and respond honestly. So God, help us right now to fall madly in love with you so that our lives may never look the same. In Jesus' name, amen.